0: Let me, let me put your mind at ease, because um, you're probably very anxious right now. Um, I'm not 16. <laughs> if I hadn't shaved this morning, you wouldn't even be wondering. Um, I'm 23. That, that probably doesn't help your anxiety at all. Um, but, but you, so you might ask, and you might wonder, what, is, what does a 23-year-old have to say? How can he even preach? Uh, well, the grace of preaching uh, is that what a preacher always has to say and only, only has to say is the word of God. Um, And so I'm excited to preach the word of God to you. I don't have a lot of stories and a lot of me um, uh, to preach because there's not a lot of me, period. I'm just a little broken pot in the grand scheme of things. Um, But the grace and the great gift of God's word is, uh, is a brilliant diamond that we get to look at this morning. So would you grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 7, Psalm chapter 7 with me. Uh, and let me let me warn you, uh, because you've been through the Psalms through this summer, uh, and you've been looking into this great storehouse of riches of experience that David had, and, and calling out to the Lord, and, and a variety of psalmists, a variety of writers, uh, who cry out to God, knowing that God is the only one who can help and who can deliver in these in these circumstances. Um, but as we come to Psalm seven this morning, uh, it's no Psalm twenty three. Uh, there's no calm waters. There's no green pastures. Uh, we get right to the heart of the justice of God, right to the heart of his righteousness, uh, his judgment. And so it's, uh, it's not necessarily a happy uh, psalm, but the conclusion um, will bring us to the gospel, uh, which is the goal of every time we, we come to the scriptures. So I'm excited for us to get there. Let's read Psalm chapter seven together. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteousness. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull, his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the most high. Let's pray together. Great heavenly father. We, we thank you so much for the great gift of your word that we can come to it and we can be assured uh, that we are hearing your truth. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit, the, the power of your Holy Spirit, would allow us to understand and we would be shaped and we would be sanctified by the truth. So thank you so much for your presence among us this morning. And we thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers uh, and you know each of us. So thank you for your word. Would you, would you guide us as we uh, dive into it? And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Perhaps the most dangerous action in the pursuit of justice is the pointing of a finger. And since Genesis three, man's disposition has been to cast blame upon somebody else to, to mar the reputation of somebody else for personal gain. This woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. Yet such casting of blame is never more abhorrent, never more detestable than when it's knowingly a false accusation. And this is where we find David. David has been accused falsely, and he is going to cry out, justice, God, would you deliver me? So we learn from the title that that David's writing this in response to the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, we we don't know much about Cush. We don't know uh, much of what he said. The scriptures in other places don't give us more detail but we do know that he's accusing David of something and David is convinced that it's false in verse three. That's where we, where it's where we understand this. He says, "O oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let my enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. If, if what's been said of me is true, God, then let justice be done. And so we see David is, David is responding to a false accusation. And it's, it's not terribly difficult for us to imagine a reason why a Benjamite might have an accusation to make against David or might have some, some animosity toward him. Because remember, uh, King Saul was a Benjamite. And so it could very well be that while King Saul uh, is pursuing David, this Benjamite now comes up with a false accusation to, in some measure, justify Saul's actions um because Benjamin the, the the tribe of Benjamin was a bit of a of a nobody tribe and suddenly Saul is king there's glory and there's honor given to this tribe that was once nothing so it could be that while king's uh, by, while Saul is king that that he's making an accusation simply to justify what Saul's doing it could be after Saul is dead and the glory and the honor that that Benjamin had is now nothing and the one whom Saul had pursued is now king on the throne where Saul once sat It's not hard to imagine why Cush might have come up with a false accusation. But what we need to understand is that this psalm is an incredibly relevant psalm for us. And whether it's relevant right now, we can be sure that it will be relevant in our lives. That there will come a time when we will need to know and we will need to understand how David expresses this cry to the Lord. Because in John 15 verses 18 to 19, Jesus says this to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, Paul tells us that the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. It's foolishness. And so the world, Jesus says, though the world hated me, so much so that they crucified him on a cross. If they hated me, how much more will they hate you who follow me? And even more succinctly, in 2 Timothy 3 12, Paul says this Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Church, if we continue to press after Jesus Christ and to try and fulfill a godly life, we will be persecuted. That's a reality. And so David finds himself on the the bitter end of injustice. Somebody is is making a claim against him that's not true. And we will will likely, almost assuredly, come to those situations. Whether or not it's going to be against us personally, against our church, against our brothers and sisters, injustice will happen. And the church is going to take the bitter end of of much of it. So then we need to to know if this is going to happen, if we're going to be. Uh, if we're going to be accused falsely, if we're going to receive injustice, if things are are not going to go well and people are going to begin to mock and scorn, how do we respond? If this is going to happen, what am I going to do? Or if it's already happening, what do I do? And so this psalm for us raises a number of questions and then answers them for us, for us to understand if this is surely going to happen, how do we respond to it? And that's the very first question. Simply this, how should I respond if I'm the object of injustice? How should I respond? Well, let's, let's notice first that David doesn't begin the psalm by saying, well, you know what? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not how he responds. That's not what he says. And, and how many of us have said that or have heard that said? And yet we know by experience that it is just not true, right? Words cut deeply words matter. Now we know this not only experientially because we felt the pain of words and we've perhaps we've dished out the pain of words. Uh, Not only do we know this experientially, we know this biblically, that words matter. In James, we're told in chapter three to tame the tongue. And he says, look, look at the ships. They, they have, they're large. They're driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And how relatable is that now in, in BC when we're we're experiencing many fires and smoke. How small a flame can set how great a fire ablaze. And this is what James says about the tongue. That words carry meaning. They're not empty. They're not meaningless. They carry great power to encourage, to discourage, to dismay, to emblazon with passion. Words carry meaning. And so knowing this to be true, how are we to respond to the words of others? When we are mocked, when we're scorned, when, when we're falsely accused, how do we respond to words if they matter? If we're not going to say sticks and stones are break my bones, but words will never hurt me. If we're not going to say that, what then should we do? first option, resigned silence. We just do nothing. That's option number one. But the thing is, we only are totally silent about things that don't matter. We're only totally silent about things that don't matter. And we just saw words carry meaning. But not only do they matter because they can hurt, but reputation matters. Integrity matters. Character matters. And when our character is at stake, when our reputation is at stake... We cannot be totally silent. Proverbs 22, 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. It's better to have a good reputation than to have all the money in the world. Ecclesiastes 7, 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, ointment in the medicinal sense. It's better to have a good reputation than to get good medical care. It is better that our character and our reputation, our integrity, be true. And so if, if our integrity matters, if our character matters, and if words matter, we can't just be silent. We can't do absolutely nothing. So then what are our other options? Option number one, we, we seek vengeance. Now, now I don't have any kids, so I don't know this, you know, by experience, but, but many of you probably do. And how many of you have had kids who begin to call each other names when somebody says, hey, you little squarehead," you know? often the first response is, wow, you've got a deflated football head, (laughs) right? We we just return in suit. We we seek vengeance immediately. And how natural is that, right? When somebody calls us out and, and begins to speak mean things against us, how easy, how natural would it be to just start speaking mean things about them? But Romans 12, 19 tells us this, beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We cannot, we cannot seek vengeance. It is not what we have been told, what we have been commanded. But we can trust that God will do so. We can trust that God will not leave this as nothing. Right? I will repay, says the Lord. So if we can't seek vengeance, if we can't say nothing, well, what what about strong protest. What if we just defend ourselves as, as strongly as we can? Well, consider Matthew five this is Jesus. Again, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a bad name for a bad name. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the left. Also, Jesus actually says, when you are persecuted, when you're mocked, turn the other cheek, don't retaliate. And even, even should we have sound arguments as to why we're uh, why we are in the right, if we should have sound arguments, often often it will be used against us that they understand where, where there is smoke, there's fire. And many people believe that. If, if you are accused of something and you just defend yourself, well, people say, wow, he's defending himself really hard. He must've done something wrong. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Many assume that to be true. And they won't, they won't be on the side of mercy generally if they're making an accusation, right? So we cannot respond with nothing. We cannot seek vengeance. We cannot return with strong protest. So what do we do? How do we respond? And David exemplifies for us how we should respond. And it's with an earnest appeal to the Lord, our God. Verses one and two, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. The simple existence of Psalm 7 ought to encourage us that there is something to be done when we're mocked, when we're scorned, when we're persecuted, when we're the object of injustice. And that is that we are to cry out to God because we need to trust somebody. We need to go to somebody for justice. And, and we could go to the courts of the world. We could. And, and many times, perhaps it will be to the right. They will judge rightly. But we cannot be absolutely assured that every time. And the courts of men do not know the hearts of men. Whereas God does. And if we come before the Lord our God with an earnest appeal, he knows every detail. He knows that if my heart, he knows if my heart's in the wrong place, he knows if the wickedness was truly done with intention, he knows all of the details. And he alone can be our refuge. And this is David's cry. In you, do I take refuge? I have nowhere else to hide, but in you, my God, for you are sure and steadfast in the right and in truth. So we, we turn to him. We turn to him with an earnest appeal because he is the only one who is able to bring justice in the right way every time faithfully. But David also exemplifies for us how, how we should come before the Lord with his appeal. Do we just, every, every time somebody says something mean against us, we just shout off, God, I've been, I've been mocked, I've been scorned, help me. Or is there something more to be done in how? And David exemplifies it for us. The how is with sober self-examination. Verses three to five. O oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. And then down in verse eight, again, he says, The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O oh Lord according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Now, David's not saying I'm perfect. I'm totally righteous. I have total integrity. We know that all have sinned. What David is expressing here is that in this accusation, in this claim, I am innocent and I'm sure of it. He's so sure that he almost declares a curse on himself. If it's true, let my enemy pursue me and overtake my soul. He shows us that as we come before the Lord, we need to be, we need to be sure that we're in the right. We need to be sure that as we come before the Lord, we are not actually the guilty party because God's not our servant. He's not our servant where we can screw up and and falter in life decisions and do something wrong and then come to him and say, God, would you just fix this? Would you fix this? And would you, would you, would you bring justice? Would you, would you do harm to the wicked? If we're in the one, if we're the one in the wrong, we need to come with a heart of repentance, not with a cry for justice. We, we call out for grace and mercy. And so we need to come when we are, when we're wrongly accused, when we're mocked, when we're persecuted, we can't stay silent. We can't revenge ourselves. We cannot speak up with strong protest, but we can come to him who hears our cry. And who will be faithful to bring justice every time. But we need to do it with sober self-examination, with seriousness to make sure that we're not at fault. And with all things, let's consider Jesus. Let's consider how the night that he was betrayed, he was weeping in the garden. He was weeping heavy. And he didn't, he didn't pray, God, would you bring justice against my enemies? Would you, bring down, uh, would you bring down fire upon the wicked who are going to, in just a number of days, falsely accuse me? And Jesus then will be falsely condemned and will be killed as a criminal for a crime he never committed. He doesn't pray that. He doesn't say, God, would you bring justice on my enemies? Would you stop them in their tracks? He says, God... Not my will, but yours. He was perfectly sinless, allowed himself to stand condemned before his accusers. Silent as a lamb before the slaughter. And just as it was God's will for his son to stand wrongly accused, perhaps it could be God's will for the same to be true of you. But don't take that into your own hands. Leave that in his. God, not my will, be yours be done. I pray that you would deliver me, be my refuge. So God does not simply say, do nothing. We are called to come to him with an earnest appeal. When we are wrongly accused, when there's injustice done against us, come to the Lord, our God. But it raises another question for us. Because we see all around the world, injustice committed daily daily. And it seems that the wicked prosper. It seems that the evildoer succeeds in all that he sets out to do. So we need to ask the question, what is God's attitude toward injustice? Does he even care that all this evil goes on around us? Does he care? With all the evil, we're forced to ask, is the answer that God is totally unmoved by injustice? Is he unmoved? Is it simply meaningless to him, whether good is done or evil is done, whether it's done against guilty, whether it's done against someone who's innocent, does it matter to him? Does he care? Do we take God to be deistic in the working of justice and deism being the idea that God created the world and then just stepped away and said, let it be. Is that how he is with justice? He created everything and then just said, do whatever you want. No consequences, live how you want. Is that true? Allow me to answer the rhetorical question. By no means. Psalm thirty-seven, twenty-eight: For the Lord loves justice; he will not forsake his saints. Psalm one hundred three, six: The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Psalm one forty, verse twelve: I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. So we see that God is not unmoved by, by injustice. In fact, he is moved by it. He will respond to it. He will defend the afflicted. He will stand on the side of the oppressed. He is moved, but, but then we we need to ask, okay, he's righteous. Is it that he simply must respond to injustice or is that he cares? Is God simply dispassionate? When it comes to justice, when it comes to the evil in the world, is God simply a stone cold judge, Judy, or does he, does he care? That's not to say judge. Judy doesn't care, but is he filled with passion? Is he filled with anger? Is he filled with frustration? What does he feel when injustice comes? And verse six answers that for us arise, O oh Lord, in your anger. And then down again in verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day, every day. But we need to understand here that, that God isn't simply angry at the injustice, at the sin, but he's angry at the perpetrator of the injustice. Psalm 5, 4 to 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Wow, that is not what we hear often. We generally speak evil about God in terms of his love and his mercy and his grace. And those are all absolutely true or we have no hope of salvation. But we also need to understand that God is angry with the evildoer. It doesn't mean he doesn't love them. In the benevolent sense of who God is, who created all things, he loves his creation. But he is angry with the wicked. You've likely heard somebody say, uh, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Uh, R.C. Sproul, a brilliant theologian, once responded to that in a Q&A. He said, but God doesn't send the sin to hell. He sends the sinner there. God is not dispassionate and He is not unmoved by injustice, by wrongdoing. God is angered. And he's a God who feels indignation every day. But knowing this leads us to a third question, third significant question. If he feels anger and indignation toward injustice, how then does God respond to injustice? Because again, we look around, we see evil thrive. We see wicked people succeeding in what they do. How does God respond to all of this? Nahum chapter one, verse three, assures us that he will. When it says the Lord is slow to anger, and great in power, and the Lord will, not, will by no means clear the guilty. By no means will any sin get past him unpunished. By no means. He is the perfectly righteous God. If he were to do so, he would no longer be righteous. He would no longer be perfect. No sin will go left unpunished. No injustice will go without justice. Perhaps one of the most common questions asked of the Christian of the Christian today is the question of evil done against the innocent. Why does God allow evil things to happen against the innocent? Now, the question begins with a false presupposition um, because we're assuming mankind is innocent. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But let me tell you, it is a great question. Why does God allow evil to happen against the innocent? It is a great question. The only thing is the innocent party in the question is not mankind. The innocent party is God. Why does God allow evil and injustice to happen against himself? And the answer is our hope of salvation. God is merciful. If God were immediate in his execution of justice... If you were swift, the moment Adam and Eve sunk their teeth into that fruit, they would have been snuffed out. But they weren't. Their sin was against God. And yet God killed a lamb and clothed them in its skins. God had mercy. It's a great question. Why does God allow evil to happen against himself for all sin is first and foremost a sin against God. God will, he will respond to injustice with sure and fair retribution. He won't be heavy handed as we just saw, right? As we just understand Adam and Eve continue to live. I've sinned many times in my life. And yet God has been gracious enough that I would carry on living He's not heavy-handed in the execution of justice. But he will respond. Verses 12 to 13, David says this, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. It is as though God has readied his bow. He has lit the flame on his arrow and he has pulled back the bow and directed it at the wicked. God will respond to injustice. Not only will He respond to the wicked, but He will respond in defense for the righteous and the upright. Verse 10 My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. Not only does He run to justice, And to the punishment of sin, but he runs to the defense of the upright. So knowing this, knowing that God, God hates sin and he's angry and knowing that he will respond, we're forced to ask a final question, which is a great question. Will there be justice in this life? Am I going to see it? Or is it all just going to happen before the judgment seat of Christ in the end? Is that where it's all going to happen? Or, or will an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth be true in this life? Is that ever going to happen? And the answer is this. God has and will continue to bring justice in this life. Should he see fit to do so? but all injustice shall be paid for in the life to come. Verses 14 to 17. This is how David ends his Psalm. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he's made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull, his violence descends. And then in a shift, David ends with this. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. Now that last verse is really interesting because we don't know how the story resolves. We don't know if David gets justice. We don't know if Cush is proven wrong. We don't know that. And this is even in fact, before the resolution has come and yet David is saying, I will give thanks to the Lord. Whether justice is served now or justice is served later, I will give thanks to the Lord and I will praise him. That's how he responds. But notice the verses before where he says they dig a hole and then they fall into it. Their mischief comes back upon their own heads. God has many times brought justice in this life. Consider Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who is terribly wicked against the people of Israel who oppresses them, God sends plagues against the people of Israel, culminating in the the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son. Consider Haman in the book of Esther, who fought so hard to see the people of Israel oppressed. And even especially against Mordecai, he built gallows in his backyard to hang Mordecai on. And we find at the end of the book of Esther that Haman himself hangs from those gallows and, and even consider Jezebel who incited her husband in first Kings 21 to have a man killed so that she could just have his vineyard. And the, uh, the prophet Elijah comes and says, dogs will come and lick up your blood from the streets. And she is thrown from the upstairs window a number of years later and is eaten by wild dogs. God has many times brought justice in this life. It's not the fullness of justice because no one ill against us can satisfy the sin that we've committed against an eternal God. But there will be justice if God should see fit to do so. And sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't. And, and we know that we've seen many a person live an evil, wicked life to the very day they die and they die in the splendor of all that they have earned in all that they have wickedly acquired. It's happened many times. It pleases God to allow that to happen. That justice isn't served, but we can rest assured that it will certainly be served in the life to come. Certainly. Now again this wasn't this, this is no psalm 23. <laughs> we haven't been we haven't been swimming down the streams of water as we've considered the justice of God. But church it is so important that we understand the justice of God. It's important that we understand that he's angry against sin and he's filled with indignation every day. It's important because understanding the justice of God is to us a shining light upon the diamond of the gospel. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And and sinners, not just in in the loose way that we use it all the time. Remember what we've just talked about, rightly objects of God's wrath. While we deserved his anger and his wrath and his indignation, Christ died for us. What amazing grace. That song was well-written. That saves a wretch like me. To be a Christian is to be forgiven. It's to have God with his readied bow, take the arrow and welcome us into his home. It's to wear the righteousness of our elder brother, Jesus Christ, who died for us. And there will be a day when we stand before the judgment. We will know that we should be among those cast away. But The only hope to which we cling, the only claim that we hold is a clinging to Jesus Christ. And by his taking the wrath of God on that cross for us so that we don't have to take it. What amazing, amazing grace is that. And so let's live in gratitude. Live in gratitude for the way in which Christ has rescued us. From what he has rescued us. The good news is only good news when we know the bad news. And so we need to know that we should rightly be the objects of his wrath and yet are the objects of his distinguishing love. And now having received that, we will never be separated from it. But should you be here this morning and should the guilt of sin still lay heavy on you, then I encourage you to put your faith in Jesus Christ because there is no other way There is no other way that the wrath of God might be turned away from you, except that it should be put on Jesus Christ on your behalf. We can't do nothing when injustice comes and it's sure to come. We can't do nothing. We can't seek revenge. We cannot seek strong protest, but we can cry to the Lord. He will bring justice because it angers him because he is sure to respond and he will do so in the way that he sees fit to do so. And we trust in a great, great God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we just give you praise. And we give you glory. We give you honor for the great mercy that we have received through your son, Jesus Christ. That we, if we look at ourselves with with serious and sober self-examination. God, we know that we are sinful and how we should be the objects of your wrath. We should be those against whom you are angry. And yet because of your son, Jesus Christ, because of the great gospel, we're the objects of your love. And we will be those who inherit a great kingdom. And so we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can come and we can learn difficult things, that your word does not back away from the parts and the, the pieces of your character that can cause us to shudder. Your word does not back away. And so we thank you that we had the privilege to study it this morning. Uh, would you work in our hearts to deepen our affection for you and the grace that you have on us? So thank you again. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.